Hey guys, Dane here with the Dark Room Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. In today's episode, I chat with Christopher Michael. Chris has had a life that, you know, we we talk about how Top Gun inspired him a lot. And I would like to think that Chris is Tom Cruise from Top Gun because he's done so many awesome things in his life and he's not done yet. He was a naval flight officer in the Navy for a long period of time before he even picked up a camera. He's become, you know, such an amazing photojournalist. He's traveled to the most extreme places like the North and South Poles. Everest, East Greenland, the Congo. Uh, He's an entrepreneur. He's an investor. He's a venture capitalist. He's the founder of Affinity Labs. He's also the founder of Military.com. You know, we cover everything from his life in the Navy to picking up a camera for the first time to flying up in a U-2 spy plane 70,000 feet above the ground. And we also talk about the realness of you know, being a photographer in 2019 and, you know, finding ways to carve your own path and to be able to make a living doing what you love. And he is a great example because, you know, he does what he loves and he's made it work for him. And, you know, he does just incredible work and it's all around, you know, purpose and meaning and and yeah. You know, I really suggest that you check out his work at ChristopherMichael.com. You can find him on Instagram at Chris underscore Michael and Michael is spelled M-I-C-H-E-L. So ton of good stuff. Really excited for you guys to hear this one. So without further ado, here is a conversation with Christopher Michael. Welcome to the Dark Room Podcast, where you'll get to hear from the best full-time creators on the planet. From starting out to where they are now and everywhere in between. Welcome to the Dark Room. So Christopher Michael, thank you so much for giving us the time. My pleasure. So, okay, I don't even know where to start because your timeline of your your career has been, you know, to so many different places, starting as a naval flight officer, going to Harvard for your MBA, being an investor, an adventure capitalist, a photojournalist, and a teacher. My oh, you forgot you forgot entrepreneur. Entrepreneur. The main yeah, see, the main thing. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know. The second to main thing. <laughs> Photography so, is the main thing. So how how have you not been Time magazine's person of the year so yeah. far? Doesn't make sense. Well, because I can't hold a job. Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, but really, like you know, when I look at look at, in my opinion, hyper successful people like yourself that do a ton of different things and have a ton of different buckets out there, you know, ha- has that always been the case when it comes to multitasking? Have you always been a multitasker, or did that kind of just start happening? You know, one thing after the other, and and where did that all kind of begin? Well, if, if you're asking, you know, did I have a sense of what my career path would look like? Yeah. The answer is absolutely not. I right. mean, photography wasn't um, even on the list of things I might even consider. Right. So, I mean, basically, I, you know, I had an unusual childhood. So my father's half Greek and British, mm-hmm. and my mother's Danish-American, and I moved eight times as a kid. So I was always this outsider. And I was a computer nerd. I was programming in the early 1980s. and um, I had this idea that maybe I wanted to go into politics and that maybe the Navy would be a good thing to do after college. So I went to the University of Illinois and then was an ROTC and Top Gun had just come out, you know, the new Top Gun's coming out. Oh yeah, for sure. And I went to Navy flight school and, uh, you know, did that on active duty for seven years and it was great fun. 
Yeah. So, you know, when you go into the Navy and, and you know, you see Top Gun and you get excited, you know, I feel like there were a lot of situations where people were in your shoes and they would go and they would see, you know, they would really dive in and see what it was like. Like, but did that only motivate you more? Was there ever a setback in that process or did you, you know, were you stoked from day one to, to your whole time? Yeah, I was pretty stoked. I mean, you know, I remember graduating from college and driving to Pensacola, Florida and getting issued my, you know, Navy leather flight jacket and thinking, you know, if you said you could be the CEO of Disney or a Naval flight officer in the Navy, I would have chosen my job. And, you know, that would have been a good choice because life is about um, experiences and adventures. And I made great friends and I did really cool stuff. I hunted Russian submarines and fought in the drug war and I worked in the Pentagon and, you know, the stories are endless and we had a great time and I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. And, you know, this is one of the things I talk about is military service. And, you know, unfortunately, we often talk about uh, when we talk about military service, we uh, journalists talk about the stories of people that are really challenged. And there's certainly no shortage of those people. But the vast majority of the people that served, um, you know, had a really good experience. You know, you're doing something with other people your age that's bigger than yourself. And it was a, it was a really wonderful time in my life. Yeah. And so how long in total were you, were you in the Navy for? Well, that's a good question. So uh, let's see if we can add this up. So three, year, three years of ROTC, okay. seven years of active duty, and about six years in the reserves. Oh my gosh. Okay. So wait, let me, let me try to add that up. So that's 16 years. Around. Yeah, something like that. But I mean, seven years on active duty. That's really the, you know, that's wearing the uniform every single day. And, and uh, you know, I just loved it and it worked well. And I worked uh, in the Pentagon for a great admiral. And, um, and my career was going, you know, quite well, surprisingly, surprisingly. And it was interesting. And this would turn out to be, you know, only later on in life, can you see themes? And one of the themes was when I feel like I had fully experienced something like the Navy, cause I had a great time in my squadron and worked in the Pentagon, usually at where I'm kind of, where I think I'm kind of near the top of the game. That's usually when I leave to go do something else. <laughs> and that's been a constant theme. Maybe I never want to be disappointed. So I, I leave I leave when things are looking good. Well, you know, what What kind of fundamentals do you think were taught or at least you took away from the Navy that, that kind of helped you for, you know, the investor route, the entrepreneur route, and even maybe the photojournalist route? Um, well, that's interesting because they, they might be slightly different. So often I get, so most of my life has really been as an entrepreneur. You know, I was an investor, but I'm really, yeah. you know, I started two companies and, and um People ask me that specific question as it relates to entrepreneurship all the time. And my my answer is kind of not obvious. So I think what people who ask me that question are thinking is that, you know, if you have a classical leadership uh, training, like let's say in the military and maybe at Harvard Business School, that you might be uh, a good leader or might bring some of those skills to to entrepreneurship. And the truth is, and we can get into it if you want, but, you know, I, ch- I was really challenged in my first company. And in fact, got fired at one point. I was able to come back, fortunately, but I got fired. And, you know, I really wasn't as good a leader as I um, should have been. And I learned over the years, especially after I'd been fired, <laughs> you know, to, to consider what really mattered. And, you know, um, the thing that I took away from my military experience, which I think is quite important, uh, both in entrepreneurship, but also in photography or just in life, is, you know, in the military, we don't motivate people by money. Right. We motivate people by purpose, mm-hmm. right? By a sense of camaraderie, a sense of a 
a bigger mission. And in business, we often think about how do we create incentive systems that are financial to drive behavior. And I think it's a mistake because I actually think that the best people are not motivated solely by money. And I think all the research proves that. And the military proves that, right? I mean, people are, you know, think about the sacrifice of somebody in Afghanistan. You know, their lives are at risk. Their friends are being shot. They're working seven days a week. And there's no bonus in it for them, right? They're there because they care about the mission. They care about the people that they're with. And, you know, that became a hallmark or a kind of um, touchstone in my later career as a CEO. And uh, truthfully, as a photographer, I don't, you know, I'm fortunate in the sense that I can choose the things that I want to work on, but I don't want to do anything for money. I want to do things for purpose and meaning and excitement and the experience. So that's, uh, you know, that was my kind of big takeaway is it specifically relates to photography. You know, I got to do the coolest things in the military and I never took a single photo. That really makes me very, very sad. And so I, I believe that memories are the currency of our lives. And I'm now absolutely obsessed with capturing memories that matter. And, um, you know, even compared to my photography, I just came back from a, I'm part of a three-year mentorship program with Jim Estrin from the New York Times and Ed Cashy, who's a great photographer. And even around all those photographers, you know, I'm the one that has my camera with me all the time. <laughs> just because I, I just don't want these moments to evaporate. Yeah. Because I'm sensitive to how many have evaporated that have been lost forever. No, for sure. And, and you know, that just shows really how much you love it and love even the process. Because, yeah. you know, like if you look back at your resume, like talking about, you know, really loving something for the purpose behind it and obviously not the money behind it, but just, you know, like really just that feeling you get when like something makes you happy, but, but also it can be like a purposeful example of, you know, how, how, you know, things can, can splinter out and, and everything's done for good or, or whatever the purpose may be, but that shows in your work. But I also feel like with big leaders and, and with people in the world that, you know, are doing so many great things, like all that it can really come down to is purpose, right? And that that's what really drives, you know, the heart behind something is is that exactly. Yeah, and you know, the, the wonderful thing about photography is there are many places to find purpose and meaning in your work. Yeah. No matter what kind of work that you do, you know, that portrait that you made of your father or your friend or a stranger on the street or a scene that you captured or some art that inspires or a story that's told that needs to be told, there's no shortage of opportunities to find purpose and meaning. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that can get lost too, even in photography like that, you know, in this day and age too, with, with Instagram and, and things like that, like it's, it's, it's nice when you can find somebody else who is shooting the things that they love. And, you know, whether that is, you know, someone they love or a place they love or a trip they love or an experience, but like, you can yeah. really, you can really tell, like you can really see that through a photograph rather than, you know, taking pictures for likes or, you know, getting assigned to something and, and really just going for, you know, what people think that, you know, what, what you think people are going to want to see. And that shows in your work fully. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Well, it's an interesting question. And I do think that we're presented with a lot of new opportunities as photographers today with all these new distribution channels. And But we're also challenged in the sense that the feedback loop that we get is skewed. That's not new. You know, the feedback loop has always been skewed because yeah. you know, if you're a magazine editor or, a, you know, whatever it might be, assignments editor or, a, some you know, a client or a, a um, a boss that you're working for, you know, they have their own views of what they're looking for. And that can be disheartening to some people. 
but I think you got to put it in perspective. But the likes business is one that's, um, you know, part of all of our lives. And I think it's important to modulate. And I think, you know, we're seeing Instagram and Facebook even themselves thinking about changing their products because they recognize that a like space culture um, has some fundamental challenges. Yeah, we're coming up on a super interesting time period when it comes to to that exact topic, right? And that exact, you know, the thing of like how, you know, how is this affecting, you know, especially the youth and these younger photographers or even just people growing up, you know, with the social media at their fingertips. Like I barely kind of miss that. Like in high school, like Instagram was kind of there and around, but for the most part, like my experience is a little bit, you know, simpler and simplified than that. But what I wanted to bring up that you kind of touched on is, you know, the amount of opportunity, you know, because of social media and because like we're in a completely content driven society. And like, you know, being a freelancer, like I, I rely on that and I rely on these businesses and and brands coming to me who need content. But I feel like also there can be this overwhelming sense of almost too much freedom when it comes to trying to figure out a path to, you know, either, you know, make money or, or make a living like how do you how do you hone in all these options and all these opportunities into like either a focus specific path or maybe even just throw that path out and just take everything that comes in? Yeah, well, it's a great question without an easy answer, and I think it really depends on the person, right? So some people, what they want to do is photography, and that's all they really want to do, and then you have to figure out how you're going to make money. Or, or support your life as a photographer. Some people love photography, but they can couple photography with another profession, right, to provide, you know, some source of income. Um, and, uh, but, you know, if you're a photographer today, I think mostly you have to be an entrepreneur. And it was interesting because I was with, you know, 10 or 11 other um, freelance photojournalists. And these are really good photojournalists. And, you know, you look at the money that they can make through editorial and, uh, they just can't make enough money, really, wow. because it just doesn't work. And so the people that it does work for are the people that have figured out how to build a kind of entrepreneurial life around photography. And right. that means that they are doing uh, corporate brand building, you know, uh, storytelling maybe, or maybe they're doing filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are creating the ideas of the stories. And I think they look at editorial, not necessarily as a source of revenue, but as a kind of a credibility and brand building source, and maybe a place to uh, affect the world, right? Because they want to tell a story that matters. Yeah. But it's, um, it's rare that that can be sufficient now to build a great career. There's certainly some examples of people that have done it. You can go on staff, uh, you know, you can be like Paul Nicklin, you know, but even he's a, he's an entrepreneur. So I think that there are, I think that there are many, you know, some people do wedding photography, some people do portraiture. I think there are many paths, but I think it's important that people are gentle with themselves in that, um, you know, just because you're not on staff at the National Geographic doesn't mean that you're not making good and important photographs and that it doesn't mean that you don't have a uh, real opportunity to uh, be important in storytelling. And one of the things I've learned, and I don't want to be running on here, but it, I've been shooting now for about 20 years, but maybe in the last 10 years, I realized you know, the quality of your image is probably only 50% of the story here. What your brand is, what your editorial message is, what, how it's packaged, how it's communicated, these matter just as much. And so there are many people who are not marketers that are producing incredible images that we don't know about and aren't getting attention. And, you know, for all of those people out there, and I feel sometimes I'm in that category, 
uh, you know, the work that you're doing is appreciated and it's important. And, um, you know, don't, don't be discouraged by the fact that some people who don't seem to be taking as good a photograph are getting more attention because it isn't just about that. Yeah, for sure. And totally a lot of, you know, right place, right time can fall into that as well. Um, especially when you're in an industry like photography where it's a lot of shaking hands and it's a lot of, you know, who knows who. And like, let's be real, if you work with a brand or a company and you're their photographer, you know, if someone comes to them and says, hey, you know, I like your stuff, do you know a photographer? You're probably going to be the first person that comes to mind a lot of times. So networking in this industry is the most important thing when it comes down to it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot of these successful photographers, I mean, there's an interesting intersection of ego and hustle, you know? And, uh, you know, what what I think about, and this isn't just true with photography, but in a lot of things in life. There's a lot of people out there that are wonderful people that are pretty low ego that don't feel the need to promote themselves. And, you know, these are the people that I like to promote. Uh, the ones that, that uh, aren't just about, you know, they don't just think about themselves. Yeah. They think about uh, the world. And, you know, that's, that's an opportunity for all of us to use social media to help them uh, get their story out there. And that's, you know, that's a great equalizer and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And like, who doesn't like, you know, working with someone that they like to hang out with and like to, you know, Hang out Absolutely. and uh, you know have a good conversation with. That's a, that's Absolutely. a big part of it. I, I love the community of photography. I mean, I, you know, there there are probably some people with sharp elbows, but I, I don't really run across them. I usually run across really good people who are trying to help each other. Can can we jump into uh, kind of a quick breakdown of uh, your experience going up in a U two spy plane, seventy thousand feet above the Earth's surface and pretty much into space. Well, you know, if you talk to an astronaut, they're going to disagree with that analysis, but it's as close as I'm going to get to space. Okay, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, I wrote, uh, you know, I, this was a kind of photojournalism piece, so there's a lot of stuff on the internet. If you Google me, you can read the full article and see all the photographs. But kind of at high level, I was giving a talk on leadership. So my first company was called Military.com. It's still called Military.com. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, I used to give talks to senior military people about innovation, and I gave a talk and uh, Davis Monthan Air Force Base, and one of the colonels said to me, if you come to my base and give this talk, I will um, get you up in a U-2 spy plane. And well, I didn't actually realize the U-2 was still flying, and it turns out it is. And I uh, went out to Beale Air Force Base and did basically a week of training with the Air Force, really interesting training, uh, like what to do if you have to survive, if you bail out. Oh you know, so I went through Navy survival school because I was a Navy flight officer, but I always found it a bit ironic that like somehow I would bail out over like Sacramento and would have to survive for like weeks <laughs> without someone helping me. Oh but, man. Uh, yeah. yeah. I went, I went with it. And, um, but basically I, I went through this training and then, you know, when you get ready to go to the, to go fly, it's basically like a NASA experience. So they have, you know, like kind of like NASA technicians, maybe they're Lockheed. I can't remember which, um, contractor but basically they fit you for a uh, space suit yeah it looks like you're going to space if you see these pictures it's insane it's, yeah it's the same it's the same space suit so wow. basically uh they have to do you know it's very i mean it's going to be incredibly expensive to put these things up um you know you wake up in the morning um did you ever watch any space flight missions where they talk about the astronaut breakfast have you heard of that before yeah yeah a little bit for sure yeah yeah so you eat like steak and eggs well i always thought it was because they were just kind of badasses <laughs> well there's actually a specific reason why you're eating steak and eggs because they're looking for what they technically call a low residue diet which means 
they don't want any uh, problems in the spacesuit, if you know what I'm getting at. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. And so <laughs> Which can happen. The, yeah, well, I guess it can happen. You need the low <laughs> residues thing, and then you, um, they, uh, you have a special kind of underwear you put on, and you put a catheter on if you're a man. And then they uh, put you on oxygen, and you get on a treadmill, and you run for like 20 or 30 minutes to outgas nitrogen. And then th- then you sit in a Barco lounger, and for like an hour, they're fitting you into the spacesuit. And that's a real experience. Did you, know? you ever have a moment in this long process that you said, oh, shit, what am I doing? Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> question. And I would say there was uh, a couple moments. So one moment was, um, so they're fitting, you know, they're fitting you in the spacesuit, which is quite a complicated process. So like two or three airmen are like, you know, getting these pieces on and they're checking and they're pressurizing it. And then they put the helmet on and the, you know, it is kind of an apropos thing to think about like a little fish tank that's going on your head, Yeah. but it has a lot of, um, electronics and there's like kind of a sheath that you have to go through. So, you know, if you're claustrophobic, you're going to feel it at this moment. I'm not <laughs> claustrophobic, but yeah. I did have a moment where like, this seems a little bit unusual. Um, and, uh, anyway, that was my, that was my moment. Uh, then you get suited up and then basically you're carrying uh, a little oxygen canister, just like the astronauts. And you, uh, they put you in a special vehicle with a lounge chair and they take you out to the aircraft. And then there's a whole series of traditions that happen that are kind of rituals. Yeah. I can tell you, are you interested? I am very interested. (laughs) Okay. So you, so uh, you can look on the, you know, if you Google this thing, you can see these photos, but basically you come out of the spacesuit and there's an airman holding your oxygen uh, machine that's kind of connected to your spacesuit and you uh, approach the aircraft, you fist bump the, or you tap the nose of the aircraft with your hand. Then you see there's a chase car pilot who's also a U2 pilot. You fist bump him and then you salute the uh, crew chief. Oh, so it's, yeah, it's a whole process. Yeah, it's a whole process. And, yeah. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to skip any of those. No, no. It's very, yeah. very bad luck. So. The, yeah, they'll send you back two weeks, two weeks in the past. You have to do the whole process again. Or. Get fitted or again. <laughs> or something worse. So. So I'm looking, I'm looking at pictures again right now. And if, if you're listening, I, I really suggest you go on here. Um. Uh, the website will be in the show notes uh, if you're going to listen after the fact. Okay. There's, but, a, there's a map Tia. I posted the story. On, it was a, in uh, Naval Institute Proceedings. Ma- yeah, I'm on Map Tia's right now. Oh, yeah. If you go to Map Tia, you can see the kind of process. So I'm, I'm looking at this plane too. So it, it, it seems like a bigger plane in the pictures than I'm sure it really was. Was it a pretty small plane when you, when you jumped into it? The right kind of visual for this airplane, I'm sure many of you are familiar with U2, but it's like a big glider. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very long wings and a very small fuselage and they care a lot about the weight. So everything's kind of stripped down, although it's an old plane, you know, it was built in the late fifties. Uh, the avionics package is new. Okay. And okay. So when you get, when you get sent up there, does G force become an, a, like a real issue yeah. at a certain point? No, no factor. No factor. That's interesting, no factor. right? This thing is not a, a high performance aircraft. This is a, Aircraft that's designed to fly very, very high above, you know, essentially Soviet missiles. And so the real, I mean, the angle of attack on takeoff, I mean, something happens, a couple of interesting things happen on takeoff. So you're in this thing and the first thing you got to do is you got to pull out the, um, um, pull out the ejection, um, safety plug. So you're, you know, you're pulling these things out so you can eject if you need to. Yeah. Then you taxi out. 
And right next to you, I think it was a Camaro, but I can't remember. There's the pilot in a Camaro right next to you and you take off and the, the guy's right next to you in the vehicle. And the reason he's right next to you is because it's very hard for the pilot of the U-2 to see what's happening. Yeah. It's very high up. Then as the aircraft takes off, the wing um, struts, which have landing gear on them, fall away. So basically, in the air now, you have fore and aft wheels that are in the center line of the aircraft and nothing on the side on the wings. So when the aircraft comes into land again, it's going to fall over, oh, wow. which is an interesting yeah. thing. Uh, and the reason it, they the landing gear drops away is because I think it's like every pound is about 10 feet of altitude. So they care a lot about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is this is the Top Gun moment. The Camaro, you guys cruising up, getting up there. It's this pretty, is it's this pretty is, awesome. This is unreal. Okay, so so you get up there and you have your camera and did you forget Oh wait, wait, wait. This is important. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's three cameras. So there's an Olympus, there's okay. a Canon 5D Mark II, okay. and an illegally installed uh, GoPro. So I asked them, can I install the GoPro and they're like absolutely not. It'll, you know. Oh wow. When you yeah. tell a photographer, it'll add too not. much and, weight. No, they were worried that it would interfere with the ejection. Oh, that's scary. And he and, said, you uh, know what? I'm going to, I'd rather have this GoPro footage than interfere yeah. with that. Yeah. So, right. so uh, can you explain why you had uh, those two cameras specifically? Three, three cameras. Three, I'm sorry, three. Uh, obviously, yeah. well, the GoPro was pointed towards you, no? Uh, well, uh, yes, it was pointed towards me, but I moved it around. Okay. So okay. I, I, I also point, pushed it forward. And in fact, the most famous photograph, surprisingly, it's a, it's a, um, a selfie. I think it was called one of them, selfie from the edge of space. Or yeah. Something. Oh, yeah. It was a popular, popular photo. Incredible shot. Love that. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's it's basically just me monkeying with the timer on the GoPro in my spacesuit. So you know, it was an unintentional. Wasn't me trying to take a photo of myself. It was more of an unintentional yeah. uh, thing. Um, well, I brought two cameras because I, you know, as a photographer, I'm always worried about my camera gear and something might happen. And you know. Something did happen at seventy thousand feet. The um, cannon failed. Oh wow! And so the shots are from the Olympus and the uh, GoPro. Unreal! So, did you tell? And Canon? you know, I've heard that story before about Canon cameras. So I don't know. Man, but, they got to uh, fix that. Can you imagine? I, so I, many people go up seventy thousand feet in the air. They got to fix the situation. <laughs> well, I switched to Nikon. <laughs> there you go. So. What what ended up happening with uh, with all the shots? Was this you know did this end up on the Maptia? Like what what was the main? Okay, well Maptia, no, it didn't end up. I didn't do anything for Maptia. I okay. did it for a bunch of magazine outlets. Gotcha. It was in uh, it was in many magazines and uh, Discovery Channel and you know lots and lots and lots of people. Um, and you know and it was a uh, you know it was one of the best and worst experiences of my life. Uh, so by the way, when I landed. Uh, you know, this is, I was in the Navy and we teased the Air Force a lot. We always thought that they were kind of jokers. And um, uh, I no longer tease the Air Force because I, I think that they're real pros. And, you know, when we landed, they basically put the landing gear back on. We taxi to base operations and there's the general and the two colonels and they're saluting the airplane. And they open the cockpit and they run up and hand me a bottle. They take my helmet off and hand me a bottle of champagne. So basically, I'm drinking champagne. <laughs> yeah, because I was the that moment. Well, that that afternoon, I'd been the 11th highest person in the world. Oh, that's so, so cool. The 10 people higher were the people in the International Space Station, and uh, I, I thought, well, this is a great experience. So the best part was that was one of the great experiences of my life, and the worst part was that it was over. Yeah, so. man, that's so wild. It's it's really wild to to know that that's kind of happening in the moment too. You know, yeah. Like there's not a lot of situations where 
while you're in that moment, you can really look and say like, wow, like this is one of the heights, right? Like, I mean, I guess it's kind of literally, yeah, literally in that case. But yeah, like a lot of times it's in retrospect, right? It's like a trip or it's something that you look back on. You're like, wow, that was actually really incredible. I almost wish I took it more in at the time being. Uh, But yeah, that's, dude, that's, that's unreal. What a trip. Yeah. How do you, how do you top that? You know? Uh, I, I keep trying, but it's difficult. (laughs) <laughs> so this this obviously is is well into your uh, life as a photojournalist, a photographer, photojournalist. What what are some of the early days of photojournalism for you? Like, what really got you into that? You know, not a lot of photographers can marry, you know, a story with shots. Sometimes they can do it in the shot, but but it's hard to you know it's hard to write. How how did you kind of marry those two in such a good way? Uh, well, you know, so I'd been running my company and then I, you know, got into photography and we can talk about how that happened. And then in 2008, I decided, well, what I really want to be doing full time is photography. So I, you know, I traveled to a lot of places and I made a lot of good photographs. And, you know, although uh, some nonprofits and some other people were using some of those photographs, I, a lot of photo editors weren't beating my door down. And it turned out, uh, that it was an important lesson, which is normally you have to pitch these people, right? Yeah. Um, or you're on staff. So basically it was kind of up to me to pitch. And, you know, my all my stories happened because I started to pitch. And so I was uh, this great guy named Thayer Walker introduced me to one of the editors at Outside Magazine. And then I did a whole series for them. And basically, you know, my my interest was to to bring back stories from the edges edges of the earth. And that's, you know, a, been a big part of my life for the last 12 years. So I, you know, I do a lot of polar photography and underwater and space. You know, I, I shot Soyuz for Yahoo. You know, I've done a lot of stuff because I, I personally am curious about these places. And, um, you know, and it's not that hard to write the story. Um, you know, we can talk about how to do that. You know, honestly, I should be doing even more of it. You know, it does take some uh, dedication you got to sit down, you know, with your computer and <laughs> come up with your story idea. Yeah. Your story idea. It's tricky. You know, it's tricky to do this kind of work because a lot of these publications don't want to pay what it costs to get you there. So um, I'm, I'm sometimes fortunate today where um, like Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, which is really the only company that really takes you to the South Pole. Yeah. Uh, you know, or they're the ones who provide logistics support to scientists or explorers. They now you know, flown me down to go shoot for them. I stayed on the ice for like three weeks for them. So I get sort of free trips. I give them photos and then I have basically the rights to use the photos and stories. So that kind of enables a lot of publications to use photos without paying, you know, the $70,000 it would cost to do the logistics. Yeah. What kind of impact does that have on you as a photographer when you return to places like this and you really, you know, you really see you know, the effects that, that, that's coming from, you know, how we are all, you know, living and, and all the climate change, you know, factors. Like, I know that's such a big conversation. We could probably talk about it for an hour, but like, you know, what, what kind of things, you know, are you seeing that like are really becoming an issue each time you, you visit these places? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, in the extremes, so, you know, a lot of people go to Antarctica. What I'm talking about is going to the interior of Antarctica. Okay. And the interior of Antarctica at the South Pole or at one of these remote stations, it doesn't seem that different, you know, probably today or a hundred years ago, because these are incredibly extreme locations, especially in Antarctica. Right. Um, 
the coastal stuff where there's a lot of melting and calving, you do see a lot of icebergs. It's difficult for me to evaluate, you know, are there more icebergs or less icebergs because it's really such a vast, vast landscape. So that that's where you need to really do kind of satellite or, um, coring or to get a real idea of what's happening. So you have to do yeah. real science in Antarctica to see the changes, but the changes are incredibly real, uh, in the North. So, you know, I mean, just to, for everyone who's here, I'm sure you all know this, you know, the North Pole is ocean surrounded by land and the South Pole is a continent surrounded by ocean, right? So when you get to the North, you're really dealing with ice. Now, the ice in the North is much more observably different than it used to be. And it's observably different in the multi-year uh, sea ice. So this is sea ice that, that doesn't melt completely throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot thinner and there's a lot more water, and we all know this, it's a lot more navigable. So that's a very, very noticeable change. And we, you know, we hear these stories about, you know, 50 degree weather near the pole. And, you know, that's scary, scary business. For sure. Um, what does that mean? That's going to mean lots and lots of things. I mean, one of the things that it means in particular is we're going to see a lot more humans in the north than we've ever seen before. Because the North, it was really an inaccessible place, even more inaccessible in some regards than the South because of the combination of ice and water, which makes it difficult to, to move uh, long distances unless you have a big nuclear icebreaker. But now, since it's navigable by water, or a lot of it is, there's going to be, you know, obviously a lot more oil uh, exploration, yeah. spending a lot of time there. So, you know, we're, uh, we're taking our last places without humans and we're... Uh, making our presence known uh, in a big way. The bigger uh, and more noticeable changes I see in the world uh, happen in just basically through industrialization and globalization. And, you know, like in the Congo or in, you know, the jungles, mm -hmm. I just see more and more people and evidence of people and pollution. Um, so th that's, you know, that's the more dramatic and more easily observable place to see, you know, climate change and to see effects of humans. When it comes to capturing and, and, and going out and shooting, you know, on both, both polar caps in the North and the South, do you, do you find that more and more, uh, more and more explorations are happening there? There's more and more money being funded for photographers and for photojournalists to go and to show these stories, or do you see it like really kind of staying the same in the last decade or are there more and more, you know, people getting sent out there to really show the story and, and, and capture what's happening? Well, the biggest change is kind of in tourism. So um, there's just a lot more people that want to go see these places in right. the world. And there's a bunch of people that have quite a lot of money and they can afford to do that. Um, you know, I went to Svalbard, I think for the first time, you know, eight or 10 years ago. Well, the number of people going to Svalbard has gone up. So in fact, I'm leading a trip in April, right? I, you know, it's like 15 people on a small expedition boat and we're going to go around Svalbard. That's much more common today than it used to be. It's still not common. Antarctic travel, you know, not unknown 20 years ago, but like pretty rare. Now there's many, many boats that are out there doing that. Um, and along with that are a lot of photographers and journalists that want to cover the story. Uh, you know, the truth is that we know the story. Right. We all know what's happening. Um, but there's a lot of beautiful photographs to be made. Uh, you know, personally, I'm most drawn to empty landscapes that are lonely, that are mostly nature. Yeah. I'm mostly drawn to humans in extreme environments. So this is my kind of photography. Um, humans really at the edge of existence. And that's, you know, that, that's been a theme in my photography. So you'll see a lot of 
people in, you know, researchers in tents in Antarctica. You'll see people under the water. You'll see people doing space. You'll see people in um, high maximum security prisons. It's humans where humans shouldn't be. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be there because there's some like law of nature. I'm just saying this is not an easy place for humans to survive. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely a place where it seems like the human, like you said, the human body, just the human itself just shouldn't be. And they're almost like, you know, fighting against the the current to make it there. And they're, yeah. they're fighting against the current to stay there as well. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. So right. uh, when it comes to your Leica partnership, uh, where you're following 30 scientists, uh, you know, in emerging fields of science, can you kind of go into what that looks like when it's going to be all finished? Yeah, well, so uh, first of all, you know, Leica has been very helpful to me in lots of uh, aspects of my career, and they're a great company. And um, you know, they're out there doing interesting things and promoting um, storytellers, uh, and which I really appreciate. And I had a chance to go out and visit uh, Leica headquarters recently. And you know, I always thought of Leica as this really big company, and but really, at the end of the day, it's a pretty small company with a lot of people who are really passionate about um, good photography and uh, storytelling and. I'm just lucky to have a chance to work with them. Uh, the bigger idea here is basically my frustration uh, about, you know, who our heroes are in society today. So, you know, when we watch television, who are the people that we're talking about all the time? They're really, it's really celebrities, you know, that's kind of, we're in a kind of yeah. heroic age of celebrity worship. Oh yeah. Even, you know, uh, I just saw Jerry Sprite, um, Jerry Seinfeld was given an award and he said, you know, isn't it ironic that we think about the Academy Awards as like this incredible um, sort of recognition of the most important people in society. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. you know, it's really ironic because, you know, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from these great actors, but there are people reading lines that are good artists. But we have people out there in the world that are doing amazing work every single day to make the world better. Yeah. And these are people that are uh, really giving to others. You know, they're sacrificing with purpose to make the world a better place. And that could be teachers, it could be scientists, it could be explorers, it could be moms or dads or kids. There are many of these people and their stories are not being told. So my idea here, and it's not a new idea, but in my, my uh, interest for the next few years is telling the stories of these new heroes. And those new heroes for me are gonna start with scientists. And the world is facing some incredible challenges. We just talked about some of them. And there are people that are working diligently, um, dedicating their lives to making a difference. And, you know, I want those people to be the new heroes. These are the people that young people I would like, that I think would benefit from admiring. Uh, those people that have spent time and, you know, to be educated, to um, think about other people, to think about purpose, not just about money, not just about celebrity. They're not promoting themselves. I want to be the tip of the spear in helping promote them. And so I can imagine that although it might start with, um, you know, good portraiture and some stories that maybe get published in some publications, my vision here is that this thing is a television program, it's a podcast, it's a place where we get to learn and uh, know about these scientists. You know, think about the role that Carl Sagan played. He played a huge role in my life, you know, from Cosmos, uh, the the famous cosmologist, yeah. you know, he, he became a role model for people. So who are our new role models? And I'll make one um, small uh, digression. You know, the world wants something new because look what's happening in Hollywood. What are the top movies Hollywood is making right now? They're making these Marvel superhero movies. Right. 
Why? Because people want superheroes to save the world. And those superheroes exist. They don't exist in fictional characters. They don't exist in Hollywood actors. They exist in people making a difference in the world. Yeah. One, I'm sure a lot of these people too, you know, are the types that put their head down and they're humble and they they just keep working and keep grinding on what, you know, they're passionate about. So it's gonna take people like you to put them in the light and to like show, you know, this is what this is what's happening. And a lot of times people don't realize, you know, what's happening right, you know, next door and what's happening like right around them. Well, think about the beauty of this project. So, yeah, this is my project, New Heroes, right? Newheroes.org. Yeah. Nothing's there yet. But um, but think about, my view is, I don't want to own New Heroes. I want New Heroes to be a movement. Yeah. And the beauty of this is every single person that's listening to this podcast, everyone, including non-photographers, has an opportunity to promote a New Hero. And that's somebody that they run across in their lives that they think are doing good work. And wouldn't it be cool if that's how our society started to evolve a little bit towards recognition of people doing good things for the world? And they could be really small things, right? Could be that person that's volunteering at the local school or the church or could be a teacher. You know, teachers are right at the top of my list. I mean, you know, honestly, there is no CEO in the world that is more important than a great teacher. Right. You know, and uh, the fact that we kind of know that, but we have not manifested that in our culture is a problem. And, and um, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything new. I think we all in our hearts know this is true, but it's going to take a movement of all of us. And so, you know, maybe I just encourage anyone listening today to think about who those heroes are in their lives. And maybe, uh, I don't know, take some, make some photographs of them and, and tweet about them or write something in Facebook about them. We all have an opportunity to contribute some good news some positive stories because there are many good news, positive stories in the world. Man, I love that so much. So, you know, have you found that in the last, you know, few years of your life or maybe even more than that, you've really, you know, wanted to take on this role of, you know, being a teacher and, and sharing the wisdom that you've built up over the years. Has that been kind of a new thing in your life or have you always kind of, you know, been a teacher and been a motivator and wanted to, you know, inspire other people or even just show like you're talking about, show what other people are doing to help inspire, you know, and help inspire others? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, um, I just turned 52 and I think of myself as like 26. So I'm kind of <laughs> surprised that I'm twice as old as I should be. Um, but you know, we go through kind of an evolution and, you know, some people are born wise and I don't think I was born wise. I think I, um, have been learning throughout my life. And mm-hmm. um, about eight years ago, you know, I was the Dalai Lama's photographer for three or four days, and I spent a lot of time in Tibet. And, and I'm a Buddhist, and I'm not Buddhism as a religion, but Buddhism as a kind of philosophy around happiness. And, you know, I, a key element of this is to recognize um, that by, you know, by helping others, we help ourselves. Yeah. And so I think one big evolution in my life has been the great joy that I get from helping others be successful. And, um, you know, I've been teaching, so I never taught any photo classes until two years ago. And now I've been teaching quite a lot. And, uh, you know, it's not for money. (laughs) I can tell you (laughs) it's because, uh, it's really rewarding to help people unlock their potential as creatives. And, so uh, as part of this, uh, you know, once you have a, it's kind of like photography for me. I didn't think I would be a photographer, but I made a couple good photographs and I was like, well, this is pretty good. I'm, maybe I can do this. And maybe a little bit around teaching and helping people, a little success with that really delivered great rewards to me. It made me feel really good. And so 
um, you know, that's where I'm doubling down is to kind of, you know, make a difference in the lives of other people. I love it, man. Well, you're definitely doing that. And uh, I cannot wait to see this Leica partnership come to life and, and how big it's going to be over time. Thank you. Uh, really, really excited for that. And and really excited for this too, man. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much for coming on Gosh, and, it's my uh, and talking. So uh, yeah, can you, can you let us know how to find you on your website and Instagram and, uh, and then that website, I'm sorry, what, what was the website again that you're, uh, you're putting all this new work on when it comes to the Leica partnership? Oh, it's uh, New Heroes, N-E-W-H-E-R-O-E-S.org, but nothing's there now. Okay. So uh, best way to find me, you can see my photos at ChristopherMichael.com, and that's M-I-C-H-E-L, no A. And then let's say I'm on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-M-I-C-H-E-L, and then on Instagram, same thing, except there's a there's an underscore between Chris and Michael, so Chris underscore Michael. And, um, you know, maybe next time we talk, we can talk about some sciences and some good news. Yeah, 100%. Next time we talk, we're going to be in person for sure. Yeah, I'd love that. Anytime you're in San Francisco, let me know. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. That'll do it, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out and checking out that episode with Chris. You can find Chris's work at ChristopherMichael.com, and that is M-I-C-H-E-L, so Michael without an A. You can see his work on Instagram at Chris underscore Michael. You can say hey to us at Darkroom. You can say hey to me at Dane Diener. Uh, Ratings and reviews on iTunes are awesome. Tell us what you guys think. Even if it's on Instagram, say hey to us, tag us in this episode, and we'll say hey to you and be like, yo, what's going on? So yeah. Very grateful. Thank you very much. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your creative friends, tell your, you know, yeah, all the above. All right, you guys, thank you very much. And we will see you guys next week.